Welcome one and all to the damage report. I am John Irola and this is Judgment Day. Not like the religious one, just the legal one for Donald Trump. And on just one of the things that he's facing legally, I don't know, maybe it's the religious one too. Christians really do seem to be on edge. I guess it's possible. Um, but in any event, we are gonna be diving into the Supreme Court uh, argument that happened earlier today. We're gonna be looking at various aspects of that. And there are some interesting updates on other Trump legal cases, his attempts to get some of the judgments against him thrown out. Uh, Rudy Giuliani back in the news, oh, what do you know for bad financial uh, updates? Once again, that'll be fun. We are also now seeing the first attempts of right wing media to spin the absolute nonsense that's been going on in the House on the border. Their utter failure to, to pass the, the border bill that they had previously seemed to indicate was super necessary, as well as their attempt to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. So that's fun as well. Whole lot of hypocrisy that we're going to dive into. Oh, also later on the show, the least surprising update to a story ever. We predicted it live on the show yesterday. It's already come true. And that's all just in the first hour. We have more to come in the aftermath. A lot of fun. Um, just a quick heads up for behind the scenes. I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. I don't know if somebody doesn't have like headphones in, but just, just a little heads up on that. But anyway, lots of fun to come in the aftermath as well. And you know, I love a good poll. We have a shocking poll result that I can't wait to talk about. So all that and more to come. If you're on a platform where you can hit the like button, share the stream, that sort of thing, uh, please do that. If you're just listening on the podcast, thank you. You don't have to do anything, just you know, listen, enjoy it. And we're gonna dive into our top story of the day. The Supreme Court just finished the argumentation on the Colorado ballot access question. So as you might know, the Supreme Court of Colorado barred Donald Trump from access to the ballot. And that began a firestorm across the nation of other states considering it or, or possibly doing it. And of course, Trump is not a fan of that. And then you had red states saying, yeah, well, if you're gonna ban him for insurrection, then we're gonna ban Biden for something. You see him drinking boba, that was weird. We're gonna take him off the ballot for that. So the Supreme Court had to weigh in and now we have the arguments. Just one day of arguments and we expect their judgment to come out soon. So definitely stay tuned for that. We Look, it's, it was a complex question covering a century and a half of law, of cases, we can't dive into all the nuances of it. But I do wanna highlight a few of, I think, the individually spiciest and most interesting moments, even if they were intended to be the most interesting moments. And the first has to do with Justice Jackson having a, like a somewhat contentious back and forth with the Trump lawyer, as you'll see in this video. Question, um, the Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection uh, as defined by section three. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection. Um, but then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So. What, what is your position oh, as to that? We, we never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would not this not engage. be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because I think you say um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government. So that's one of many reasons, but for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this 
And so Why the point is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection as that term is used in Section 3. Thank you. Because, thanks. Thank you, Counsel. So that was fascinating. That was also, perhaps more importantly, it on the question of whether it was an insurrection for quite a while. It briefly came up again, and we'll talk about that. But I think this is sort of core to the whole thing, not just to this particular case and the, the weird semantics that they're gonna get into throughout every aspect of this, whether he engaged or not in the insurrection, whether it was an insurrection, also even applies in that semantic way. But his attempt to be like, it was just a riot or it wasn't organized, so it doesn't count. And she pushed back against that. And look, spoiler alert, I think largely most of the justices seem to be very hesitant to uphold what Colorado did. But this is an area where there was fighting back from at least Justice Jackson. So it has to be concerted, it has to be organized, it has to be an attempt to overthrow the election. How is this not those things? Now, the riot itself was not organized. If you just look at a picture of it, it's chaotic. But the fact that it was there was literally organized. It was They were directed to go there. They were told to come, they were told to gather. They were then told where they should go next and what they should do when they get there. If they're chaotic when it happens, the hell does that matter? That's like saying if Trump had had tanks like rolling down the boulevard firing shells at the White House, but then the fires that those shells set were chaotic, that wouldn't count. And it was concerted. They'd been working for months in a variety of different ways to overturn the results of the election. This one component was seemingly in action, not organized. It went, you know, it went absolutely insane. But their efforts to organize alternate slates of electors to influence state as secretaries of state in the various states, all of that to stop the certification of the vote. Was that not organized? Was that not literally directed by the man that it would benefit? And I understand that they're not there singularly to determine, to finally rule whether this was participation in an insurrection. But I think that that sort of goes to the heart of people's concerns about all of this. And notably, where we cut that video off was basically the end of that conversation. The subject was changed. And later on in today's arguments, when the subject of whether this was an insurrection, whether Trump participated in it came up again, the subject was almost instantaneously changed again in both cases by conservative justices who appear to have no interest whatsoever in there being a frank, clear, transparent discussion about what actually happened on January 6th, what it was and Donald Trump's participation in it. And it doesn't mean that we won't get that conversation in the Supreme Court. You know, this is about whether he can be on the ballot, whether in the end he's able to hold office, particularly if he is found guilty of some of these crimes, including possibly participation in an insurrection. They're almost certainly gonna have to return to the topic so they can like evade it as long as possible. But this seems like damage control, maybe for them, but definitely for Donald Trump in the meantime. And if you're gonna have all of this argumentation come down to definitions, if it's gonna be so fundamentally semantic, then let's engage in some semantics. If it wasn't an insurrection, what the hell would be? What would have had to have happened on January 6th or in the weeks before January 6th for it to qualify as an insurrection? And for all of Donald Trump's participation in it, what more would he have to do to have engaged? Does he literally have to kick down the door to Nancy Pelosi's office himself? 
first of all, he's not capable. So how was he going to do that? But no, the idea that he has to be on the front lines is ridiculous. He sent the front lines and all of the other lines too. I suppose that'll be adjudicated in other courtrooms, but there's a lot of cowardice, I think, by the justices on display today. And I want to get into one of the other main topics as well. There was a lot of discussion about precedent effectively, not just you know the precedents of the past and how they should apply to whether Donald Trump should stay on the ballot, but what will happen if they decide to let the Colorado decision be upheld. I would say that maybe the majority of the discussion was directly or indirectly about that. Here's one instance of it. Justin Kagan asked the lawyer for the Colorado voters, this is not the Trump lawyer, why Colorado should be able to decide unilaterally to keep Trump off the ballot and affect the whole country. That seems a bit extraordinary, does it? And I point that out because that's Kagan. Like a lot of people were making this point. It wasn't just Justice Thomas or Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett. No, the, the quote unquote libs on the court were doing it as well. That seems a bit extraordinary, doesn't it? Well, yeah, because there was a coup, which is sort of by its very nature extraordinary. Should it be routine? No, it shouldn't be routine. But I'm also worried about attempts to overturn the results of election becoming routine. That's what your job is to stop. We are trying to make it so this one line that should have never been crossed is at the very least not crossed again. But they seem terrified of the what effect there could be. And they, they got into all these arguments that we've previewed before, wherein, well, okay, you say that this is an insurrection. Colorado says it, their, their Supreme Court says it, and they want to bar him for that. But we know that there will be a lot of Republican states that will bar Joe Biden. And the judge says, or the judge, the the lawyer for the Colorado voters, I think, rightly says, well, you know, simply because some people may do like sort of sham versions of this, you still have to rule on the constitutionality of it. And they they didn't accept that at all. And I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not even saying that they have to agree with me that the various red states that responded to the Colorado decision were being disingenuous, that they didn't really mean it, that that the state of the border. Is Joe Biden committing an insurrection or giving money to Iran, which he didn't do, would be insurrection? I think that that's transparent, that they don't actually mean that. But even if you believe that there could theoretically be some sort of a slippery slope, do you know who would decide where the line is drawn for what qualifies as insurrection? It would be the Supreme Court. And I know that that's inconvenient for them. They theoretically might have to work, they might have to write something down. Oh my God, they might be criticized as a result of it. But you could draw lines. You could say, for instance, if you send a mob to the Capitol and they sack it and they try to hunt down your political opponents or even your political allies to kill them, I think we can all agree that that's on one side of the line and simply being a Democrat is on the other side. But the thing is, they don't seem to want to be the ones who have to define that. And it's not just the Republicans, the, the Democrats as well. They are very worried about the consequences of their decision. When I think if they want to be worried about the consequences of something, they could maybe be worried about the consequences of inaction, of allowing someone who has already tried to overthrow the government to once again be on the ballot and be in an opportunity in a position come next November, December, and January to maybe try it again and maybe successfully this time. Like I know for them, it's a little bit abstract. That's a thing that happened at the Capitol or whatever. But um, 
they could storm the Supreme Court. They could storm wherever it is that you live. Like, I know that you didn't have to run for your lives through the halls of Congress, but it could come to that. And so anyway, they, they just they seem very ready to abdicate uh, abdicate their responsibility, their ethical obligation as the final arbiters of the Constitution, to be the ones that if no one else will to protect democracy, to protect the inherent fundamental nature of our country, and they don't seem to want to do that. Instead, it's going to be the semantics. So, did he engage in an insurrection? Uh, what exactly is an officer of the United States? Well, did he take an oath to support the Constitution? Because, like, theoretically, he hadn't held office before. Like, if you listened to the argumentation, that's the sort of stuff that it came down to. And I understand that very often the role of the Supreme Court is to concern themselves with language. But they also appear to be very influenced by consequences. Like your fear about what Texas or North Dakota might do is not fundamentally a semantic thing. You're worried about interpretation and the next steps on this. So why are you not worried about the other side of that? You only seem to be worried about that when it comes to blocking access, not to not blocking access. And so look, my read right now, is that I do not think that they are going to uphold Colorado's bar. And look, there are cases to be made. You could say that, well, at the end of the day, it really does come down to language and oh, they figured out this thing where it's an office of the United States rather than an office under the United States. It's literally what they're arguing about. And if they accept any one of those individual semantic points that are being made by the Trump team, then theoretically, they can use that as sort of a narrow way to allow him to stay on the ballot without actually ruling on the larger issue, which is what do you do when someone commits a coup? And they don't want to do that. Now, they might say that it's a semantic thing and they would like, Textually be correct. But can we like can we also bear in mind the, the, the bias? Clarence Thomas is involved in this question. And Clarence Thomas, the guy who, by the way, is helping to lead some of this conversation about the consequences and all that, a guy who previously was only worried about the strict text of all of this stuff, suddenly is, is much more worried about social context. He's involved in this thing. He did not step down or recuse himself from this decision, despite the fact that his wife, Ginny Thomas, was a participant in January 6th. I mean, she wasn't kicking down the office. I don't think she has the door to close the office. I don't think she has any more capacity to do that than Donald Trump does. But but she was a participant in it. She was a spreader of these conspiracy theories. And you might say, well, I don't know if that rises to the level of where he should recuse himself. But I will say that if the spouse of Kagan or Jackson had done something like this on the other side, the right would not be as concerned about the precedent that might be set. And look, there are there are other issues. I, I, I wish that I could summarize all of it. I wish that we had been able to do live commentary alongside it, actually. That would have been useful. Kavanaugh, for instance, jumped in and he said, it shouldn't necessarily come down to this particular clause if your concern is about insurrectionists holding office, because there's another way that you can bar them from office. You can criminally prosecute them for that insurrection and they will therefore be barred from holding office, which by the way, that is an element that will definitely be challenged by the Trump team. Kavanaugh can simply state it as a fact, but they're gonna be back in session debating that in the next few months probably. And in the meantime, look, they don't, the right, the right doesn't accept that either. They don't think that it would be valid to convict him for this. So I don't know, it just, it seems like excuse after excuse after excuse, that's what we're getting. And meanwhile, for reasonable Americans, we know what the intent 
of that amendment is. We know why there is a component of trying to bar people who rebelled effectively against our system of government from holding office. And the idea that it should bar people from extremely low levels, low level offices from holding that office, but not the president, not the former president is utter madness. You cannot state that you think that that is the intent of those who wrote it with a straight face. You can only say that you want to ignore that because it would impinge on Donald Trump's political future. That's it. The only thing I can say that's kind of good news coming out of this is that we'll probably get the decision soon. Now, generally, after argumentation, it takes something like three months before they issue some sort of decision. That seems untenable, considering that the Republican primary will be long over by then, I would assume. So we can expect that it'll be expedited. Much of the discussion was in line with what we expected. So there's no reason that it should take a long time, but it's obviously gonna have a massive effect. And and by the way, I will I will close on this section with this. I agree with them that if you were to bar Donald Trump, there will probably be negative consequences of that. That is the issue that you have with a guy who is the cult leader of a rabid, oftentimes violent political faction. But the idea that we can't afford to bar someone from office because their followers are too deranged. That seems to be flipping logic on its head. That seems like exactly the sort of person that should be barred from office, particularly when they've already tried to overturn the results of an election. Okay, so stay tuned for more on that, but we need to jump over to another one of the legal updates for Donald Trump. A federal judge denied Donald Trump's motions for a mistrial in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case saying, this is the fun part, that the former president's arguments had no merit and are entirely pointless. To do the mistrial would be fundamentally a massive waste of time, judicially, socially, and in terms of making sure that E. Jean Carroll, who has already been found to have had her rights violated, both in terms of the sexual abuse as well as the defamation from getting the money that she is owed. So there was an initial statement that was provided by the judge and then a written order. And in that, the judge said that granting a request for a mistrial would have been entirely pointless because it would only mean that the case would start over. Now, that is pointless from the point of view of E. Jean Carroll or Judge Kaplan. Obviously, that is very much the point for Alina Haba, Trump's legal team and Trump himself. He wants to waste time, he wants to drag this thing out. That's it. I don't know if that's lost on the judge, but um, so what? where did this come from? Trump lawyer Alina Haba requested the mistrial after Carol discussed deleting some death threats she had received to help with her anxiety and quote, get control of the situation. So therefore, Haba accused Carol of deleting evidence and made the unusual mistrial request in front of the jury. So that is not technically deleting evidence because the judge ruled that only after the point where the actual where the lawsuit had been launched would deleting evidence count as deleting evidence. But but think about how twisted that is anyway. The idea that she had more death threats than we saw and the fact that she didn't keep all of them implies that you should have a mistrial. So Kaplan said that he denied the motion immediately during that hearing, partly because it was untimely since the defendant had been aware of the alleged deletion of messages for nearly a year before the trial. If the trial were were uh, mistrial were declared, a new trial would be called and the same exact issues would be in effect, meaning that it would serve no useful purpose. Kaplan wrote that Haba's written motion for mistrial was at least doubly frivolous and entirely baseless. Granting it now would be an even less sensible and a bootless exercise, which is an expression that I've literally never heard before, but I don't mind it. 
And by the way, pointed out that the fact that they had requested this mistrial in front of the jury when they weren't supposed to was needlessly prejudicial to Miss Carroll as well. And also, it's stupid for so many reasons. So bear with me. If they were to grant the mistrial, the only like actual effect of it would be that you could theoretically then ask Miss Carroll questions about the messages and why she deleted them. But they already did that during the first trial. So they knew about the deletion for a year. They sat on it, not using it, maybe because of incompetence, maybe specifically because they thought they could get a mistrial if they didn't act on it then. They've already acted on it in the courtroom in the only way that you reasonably could. And it doesn't change any of the fundamental facts of the case. He has already been found guilty to have sexually abused her. That is not gonna change based on some death threats that non-Trump individuals sent to E. Jean Carroll. And so it's an utter waste of time. And that is, of course, the entire point. They don't want E. Jean Carroll to get the money that she is owed. They want to drag it out, waste as much time as possible. Haba did not respond to request for comment. On Wednesday, not surprisingly, she once again utterly failed in court. I'm assuming she will console herself by going on right-wing media. And I will remind you that the stakes are very high in this. E. Jean Carroll is owed $83.3 million, and that number could balloon from here. And I'm not even counting other defamation cases, which theoretically could come. Now, I understand that we're over. I just wanna briefly do the Giuliani thing. Because we're talking about money, we're talking about millions of dollars. But let's talk about the millions of dollars that Rudy Giuliani needs but doesn't have. Rudy Giuliani, former lawyer to the former president, says that he was shortchanged by Donald Trump's 2020 election campaign to the tune of $2 million in legal fees. But don't worry, he's not mad at Donald Trump over that. He wants the money, but everybody be very nice to Donald Trump about it. So he made these comments during a meeting with his creditors at the US Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York on Wednesday. His claim for unpaid legal work could prove critical as the former New York City mayor navigates his personal bankruptcy. So obviously he owes tons of money to the election workers that he defamed following the 2020 election. How much money he actually has to give could end up being a fundamental part of whatever settlement they reach or you know what the timeline for payment is. So this is why he is trying to demonstrate that he is broke AF. That's his goal these days is to prove that he doesn't have any money. And the bad news for us as the opposition is that it's very viable. Like you look at him and you just think, God, that guy probably doesn't have 20 bucks. But anyway, he noted during that meeting that he estimated $2 million that Trump, the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee owed him, not Donald Trump himself. And he says, I got paid expenses, but I never got a salary. And somehow, I guess he negotiated a $2 million salary with Donald Trump. I would say he was overcharging and also simultaneously underpaid. But again, not blaming Trump. And he was very clear about that after leaving the courtroom. Take a look at this. Can you clarify the unpaid legal bills just after the last election? Was that two million you are still owed or all of the lawyers who? Oh, the tribute would be me. They have their own. They have their own amount. I don't know what they are. And you said upstairs you do not believe it's Donald Trump who owes you that no, money. No, I believe it's the, a corp, the entity. I was representing the entity. And, that, and that's what I, you know, I know that sounds like a, a strange difference. But determine later on well, who's actually liable. He's not going to give you a final legal Thank you guys. judgment. Thanks, guys. We got we to catch a call. Sorry, guys.
British Leon, no, 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 it's not Trump, it's the entity. And that may seem like he was gonna say something to akin of a ridiculous difference. And his lawyers seemed to agree, which is why they hustled him on out of there. They were they were excited to talk to the cameras until it came to that topic. So Donald Trump isn't responsible for this, Trump's campaign is. Follow up, um, who would be in charge of getting the campaign to get off its ass and pay you? Donald Trump, obviously, like imagine if, Imagine if like TYT owed me $2 million and they were like, do you think that like Jank should pay you? And I'll be like, no, it's not Jank, it's TYT. Yeah, but he's in charge. You don't think that Donald Trump could put some pressure on them? And, and look, many of you might think, well, why do you care? Why do you care fundamentally whether Rudy Giuliani ever gets paid? Why do you care if it's Trump who owes him the money or the Trump organization? Because it's not really Giuliani's money. It is at best temporarily Giuliani's money. That is just two of the 100 and I think 58 million dollars that he owes to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. So Donald Trump sitting on his hands and refusing to pay that shell of a lawyer and a mayor isn't really screwing over Giuliani. Giuliani doesn't want the money, he's just gonna have to hand it over anyway. It's screwing over the two women whose names he dragged through the mud, who he has caused to be hounded, defamed, had death threats made against them for literally years at this point. That is the stakes in this. So it's ridiculous and, and he's he's barely like getting by day to day Rudy Giuliani. But don't allow that to make you forget the actual stakes, which is that those women are owed their money. Okay, with that, we're gonna take a short break, but much more to get to after this. I feel like that cut off early. Anyway, welcome back to the show, everyone. It's just me. I'm just Ken, I hope that that's enough for you as we launch into a lot of interesting news, including the fallout from this earlier this week's failure of the Republicans to do virtually anything that they said they were gonna do on the border, starting with this. Don't let the Democrat media machine, not for one second, have you believe that just because the House came up short in impeaching Mayorkas, that we're not on a winning roll here, because we are. The country is waking up, they're demanding real change, and they're looking away from Washington and toward the guy who had us going in the right direction just four years ago. She's doing her job, I'll give Laura Ingram that. She's supposed to take this absolute turd burger that was handed to her by the Republican Congress and pretend, oh no, it's very tasty, trust me, I'm really enjoying this. I don't wanna gag at all. They failed, and not just on the border bill, and look, in the immediate term, that may not seem like a failure. After all, they wanted to kill it. But will they want that in the long term? Will the responsibility not be pinned on them for doing nothing at this border that they say is so chaotic? But of course, she's providing cover for their failure to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, something that she and the rest of Fox and the rest of the right wing media sphere have been pushing for for a long time. They utterly failed in buffoonish, buffoonish fashion to do that. Now, you could just acknowledge that. You know, a rational person could do that. You could still push for those goals in the long term. But she is not, she's not a rational person who's analyzing analyzing the news and responding to it. She's a pundit, okay? She's a propagandist. And that is the role that she's playing here. Now, despite the fact that they haven't accomplished anything, they have nothing to run on. Here is her explaining how they're winning every day. Of course it was gonna fail. We tried to warn them. Americans are not stupid, even if they think we are. We beat the powerful Chamber of Commerce, we beat the corporate media, we beat the pro-amnesty crowd, and of course, the old establishment. Not bad. 
And if they try to resurrect this corpse, we're gonna beat them again. Also, this episode demonstrated that the dinosaur media is losing power and influence. That's a very good thing. Yeah, we beat all of the chamber commerce, blah, blah, the establishment of the Border Patrol Union. We beat them, screw them, they suck. Why the hell would they be a part of this process? You know, we beat all the right wingers in the media who just last year were saying, we need to pass a bill, we have to pass a bill. Look, these are the gymnastics, mental and rhetorical, that you have to twist yourself into when what your party does, what your movement is, can be changed entirely, turned on a dime by a message from Donald Trump. That's that's what it is. And look, this is not the first time that we've seen this. I know a lot of people, it's so hard to remember the early days of the pandemic, but I was following it every day. In the early weeks of the pandemic, even once the lockdown started, Fox News was advocating for us to beat this thing. Tucker Carlson was telling people to socially distance, to wear masks. It wasn't until it was made clear by Donald Trump that he was not gonna take this seriously that they decided, "Oh, wait, we're not gonna try to beat this thing. We're not gonna use this as like a thing that we can fearmonger over to stay in power. Uh, and so they turned on a dime and that's what they're doing here. And it's her job, I suppose, to come out and pretend that this is somehow good for regular Republicans. And look, again, as I've always said, I'm not even implying that the bill needed to be passed or the bill was awesome. Just that it was definitely awesome from their point of view. It was what they have been asking for, not just for months, not just since last year, but literally for decades. And they set fire to it, not because their priorities have truly changed, except that their priorities have to be whatever Donald Trump says they can be in the moment. Now, that's how Ingram is trying to rewrite history over this. Jesse Waters is going to at least imply that he's super excited that the GOP is accomplishing nothing on the border, not even their stupid impeachment drive. Take a look at this. The border bill was just a government jobs program for amnesty. Politicians wanted to hire 4,000 asylum officers to rubber stamp asylum requests. Remember the main qualification for hiring anybody, especially an asylum officer, is equity, says the binder. Translation. The DEI hires are approving every asylum request and they grow the ranks of government unions and their dues go to Democrat super PACs. I guarantee you Biden's DEI asylum officers probably taking kickbacks from asylum applicants. Little envelope under the table, yep, welcome to America. Okay, he obviously has absolutely no evidence of that and he doesn't care. What we have evidence of is how much pressure they feel that they are under to pretend that this is all good. And I know that because they can't go 10 seconds without saying DEI. It's DEI this, DEI that. You know they're feeling pressure when they have to pretend that like, oh, you know, I know this is like everything we said we wanted, but I, like, you know, a black person might get a job. So is that really what you want at the end of the day? And also, I'm gonna pretend that I have a problem with corruption that I just invented for the purpose of this segment. The bill is not designed to do DEI, it's literally money to the border patrol, which you guys 364 days out of the year pretend to care about. It would provide $20 billion in funding to bolster and expand border security operations. It would hire new officers for the border patrol, many of them. Joe Biden would literally have the ability to fully shut down the border. And and like I understand you might think, well, I'm a Republican. Joe Biden's not gonna do that, but that would then be the law. You know how they've been claiming that he could just do that now and he can't? 
if Donald Trump wins, he would come into office with the ability, theoretically, to fully shut down the border, or at least to the capacity that the Border Patrol can. They're turning that down. And yes, they would hire additional asylum officers. They would also raise the threshold for eligibility for submitting an asylum claim in the first place. And the, the extra officers would allow them to adjudicate and move on from individual claims of asylum far more quickly. That's what they say they want. They say they want these things to be accomplished and we can move on so that we don't have people who are theoretically staying in the country for months or even longer while waiting to hear if their asylum claim is going to be accepted. It's all what they've been saying they wanted, but now they have to pretend that they don't because it's election season and because Donald Trump is terrified of Joe Biden getting brief credit for having passed a bill. And I'll say you know, a short version of what I said on the Young Turks yesterday. You guys, you pay attention to politics, you understand how this works. If Joe Biden passed this bill, in theory, yes, in the short term, he'd be able to campaign on saying, I got this done. There would be some good headlines and everything. Who would be talking about this in five months? Like this would be the one thing that people would be thinking about for the election. And I will also remind you that while yes, Joe Biden in theory could mention in a campaign ad that he'd passed this bill to deal with the situation at the border. Do you know who else would be able to run on that? Republican senators. Republican Congress people, some of whom are in close races and would love to have like literally the first thing that they could say they did in office. That has been denied to them, not because they truly have a problem with it, but because maybe it'll help Donald Trump a little bit. They could lose seats in the Senate and House. Seats in the House, by the way, that with their slim margin, they could not afford to lose. They could lose control of the House and they're willing to do that because Donald Trump maybe needs help. Because he'd really love to run on demonizing the border, which he'd do even if they passed the bill. They could pass the bill and he would still talk about migrants crossing the border and raping and killing and pillaging. And oh, did you know there's a caravan in El Salvador? They would still do all of that between now and election day. But because Donald Trump's scared right now, damn our values, damn our you know policy requests of the past, damn our control potentially of Congress, we need to kill this thing. Anyway, I want to turn from clownish media figures to clownish elected officer, elected politicians. Tim Scott trying to make himself look good in the media, instead tying himself in knots. Take a look at this. Finally, I, I, I just want to ask whether or not this new bill that's just about foreign policy, whether you're going to vote in favor of it. Foreign, foreign money for, for Israel, for, for what's happening in Ukraine. What do you think of that standalone foreign policy bill? David, I voted no already a few okay. minutes ago, and here's the reason why. Unfortunately, what this administration and Chuck Schumer, they are doing is using the crisis in Israel to support other priorities of the party. We should first secure our southern border. He voted against the bill to secure the border, or at least from their point of view to secure the border, but you already knew that. so. He was a Hades no, I've literally never, I mean, I assume that's like he wants to say hell no, but he's religious, so he can't say Hades no. They're both just like words for, anyway, I, I don't wanna get into the religious stuff with Tim Scott again. So we can't pass this bill on standalone foreign aid because we have to secure the border first, which I already voted against. It would be great if he'd say that he voted against that because he wants to focus on standalone aid to Israel and Ukraine. Does he realize how stupid this is? Does anyone watching Fox News realize how stupid this is? They're not doing anything.
And I will remind you, by the way, I understand that the impeachment drive and the border bill, that's the thing that's dominating political discourse. And I understand why, especially because it like they're talking so much about the border. It lays clear the hypocrisy in a way that few political moments do. But that like solo foreign aid bill that would give money to Ukraine and Israel, I will remind you, half of that is giving money to Israel, which they say is a big priority. They say that they need to do that. They voted against military aid to Israel amidst their war on Gaza. Could that potentially pop up in an ad? Now, I understand that the Democrats knew that that wasn't going to pass the individual thing. But you know, this is a part of politics. You make the, the other side vote against stuff that they claim to support. And I like it. I like the politics of it. I don't know, coming out of this, is anything going to be passed? Will there be any aid to Ukraine? Or does Donald Trump's need to not to, to bar a win for Joe Biden in an election year going to literally lead to the fall of Ukraine? What a stupid world we live in. What a fundamentally stupid world we live in. Anyway, the politics of this are front and center for the Republicans. They're doing what they're doing for political reasons. But that doesn't mean that that's how it's going to work out in practice. The Democrats, including Joe Biden, are going to try to stick it to them on all the shenanigans of this week. And there's an indication that that's already happening. Take a look at this. But if the bill fails, I want to be absolutely clear about something. The American people are going to know why it failed. I'll be taking this issue to the country. And the voters are going to know that it's not just a moment. Just at the moment, we're going to secure the border and fund these other programs. Trump and the MAGA Republicans said no, because they're afraid of Donald Trump. <laughs> afraid of Donald Trump. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine, to make it clear to the American people that you work for them, not for anyone else. I know who I work for. I work for the American people. Okay, so that is Joe Biden getting aggressive to the extent that he is capable. But, but I want you to imagine what he just said there, which is right on the facts. And uh, edit it down and put invigorating music in the background, maybe speed it up a little bit. And that's your campaign ad. Don't release that raw, unedited footage because it's just like he needs some energy, man. Like get him, get him an espresso or something. Like he needs some energy. But he is right. It is hypocritical. And it's hypocrisy. Not on something that is tangential to the Republican cause or or the MAGA movement. It is core to what they say they believe, and it should be a big part of the race. It will be a big part of the race. And while he has a little bit of trouble making that case, you know, in actually speaking about it, I would love if he would dispatch me to talk about it. Uh, on social media, they're doing a better job of it, of pointing out the, this hypocrisy. The Biden Harris HQ uh, Twitter account has a thread of what the Republicans were saying back before Donald Trump weighed in and what they ended up doing. So take a look at just some of that thread. The only long-term solution to the crisis and the only way to ensure the endurance of our nation as a sovereign country is for Congress to overcome open borders obstruction. This is not possible to believe that a thing like this could happen. Uh, it's, it, you already have, you don't need a bill. 
We are committed to that. The battle is for the border. We do that first as a top priority, and we'll take care of these other obligations. We did th read through it, Laura, and it did not take long to realize that this is dead on arrival. My stance is that America's border comes first and foremost because I serve in the United States Congress. I can tell you right now, Larry, it is dead on arrival. As a matter of fact, I've told the House Hill press to stop asking me about the Senate border surrender bill because we could care less anything about it. What is happening on the border, it is a crisis at a level we have never seen before. We act, we don't need a border bill. We, we achieved the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years under Donald Trump. Yeah, they're absolutely burned. Look, again, the, the issue is that the right isn't gonna receive that message or they've been trained to not care about the fact that there's this hypocrisy. But, but what I love about the threat is, it's not like here's what they said five years ago. It's here what they said last month, some of them December, I suppose. But Ted Cruz, that was like two and a half weeks ago that he was saying that. But then Daddy Trump weighed in and they all bowed down. It is utterly pathetic. But it is on the Democrats to make sure that people get that message that you peel off perhaps some independents. Maybe you dissuade some Republicans from participating by, by reminding them that you put these people in office and they did literally nothing for you for four years. So get on it, Biden campaign and find some good music to accompany him, something with a beat perhaps, because it just, you need to up the energy if you're really gonna stick it to them. Okay, with that said, we're gonna take our second break of the hour. When we come back, that uh, totally not surprising, but still a lot of fun update to a story we talked about in yesterday's show coming up after this. Welcome back one and all. Okay, let's get to the story that we were at some point definitely gonna have to cover starting with this. Well, he had been shoplifting first. The guardian angel spotted them, stopped them. He resisted. And let's just say we gave him a little pain compliance. He's sucking concrete. The reason why I'm asking about this is the man was a Bronx native. So he said he believed he was a migrant because he was speaking Spanish. Um, none of what they thought was that he hadn't been accused of shoplifting. There's been no evidence that he was. I reject the premise that anyone can take the law into their own hands. Then we have chaos. This is not the Wild West. This is New York State. Anybody surprised? <laughs> we covered this story in the show yesterday. Sean Hannity live broadcasting what was presented as a group of vigilantes attacking a migrant on the streets of New York who had just shoplifted. That was supposed to be acceptable, but of course there were reasons to suspect that that wasn't the story. And we wondered, are we gonna find out? Maybe the person wasn't a migrant. Maybe they weren't really shoplifting. No, all of it was a lie. They just found, there's a guy who's, who lives in the Bronx and they beat him up. Now, apparently he was being disorderly. Police said that he was issued a disorderly conduct summons because he was acting in a loud and threatening manner on a public sidewalk. The NYPD provided no evidence to support the allegation that the man had been shoplifting. And I just want to pause on this for one second because it is maybe fair, you know, that that guy was acting in a threatening manner on a public sidewalk. But do you know who else was acting in a threatening manner on a public sidewalk? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the gang of people beating up people on live TV. I feel like maybe there should be some summonses for them. And we have the evidence, it was on Fox News. 
Anyway, uh, Sliwa now has a totally different explanation as to why they were doing what they're doing. Says that the man hit a female guardian angel before other members went and took the person down. Adding that the shoplifting allegation stemmed from what those in the crowd told him. Sliwa said he believed the man was a migrant because he had been speaking Spanish and members had previously come across him with other Spanish speakers. So we thought that might be the reason and yep, it's as stupid as that. He spoke Spanish and as we know, the only people who do that are migrants. It's New York City. There are, I'll say a couple hundred people who speak Spanish in New York City. Sliwa is a full grown man who has no idea what's going on. Now, by the way, if the guy hit a female guardian angel, that is bad, okay? I will say that, that is bad, don't do that. And if you randomly punch a person, then you might get punched as well. But if you are going to tell a Fox News host, as your group is roughing up a guy and making him eat concrete, that it's because he was shoplifting, you're gonna need a lot more evidence than somebody said it. Like literally, a person in the crowd said it. Which crowd, by the way? Is it possible it was one of the guardian angels? Because every other part of this is stupid as hell. And I will remind you, by the way, that there was reason to suspect that Sliwa was untrustworthy that long predated his live hit on Sean Hannity's show. Back in the 90s, he and his group apparently manufactured at least six different stunts to make themselves look good, including one where Sliwa said he was injured fighting a number of fictitious rapists at a Brooklyn subway station. That did not happen. So this guy has literally been lying for decades about his good Samaritan work. Now, if a journalist were dispatched to look into this, they might have a problem with what he did. Unfortunately, he didn't go with a journalist, he went with Sean Hannity. And I would have some tough questions for him too, if I was the law. He was, he was watching live an assault, apparently maybe an unprovoked assault against a US citizen. He did nothing, in fact, he did PR for the group that was committing a crime live on his show. Anyway, we'll see if there's any consequences for that, don't hold your breath. And let's jump to this final story where we don't have nearly enough time, but okay. Trump loves polls, he particularly loves posting polls where he is dominating his political opponents. But we've got a poll that I don't think he's gonna be talking about anytime soon. It's a Marquette Law School poll in Wisconsin that shows Nikki Haley leading Joe Biden by 15 percentage points among likely voters. Absolutely demolishing the sitting president in this swing state. Trump meanwhile was neck and neck with Biden, 50 to 49, well within the polls margin of error. Now, this poll was not lost on Nikki Haley who tweeted it out saying, here's a hard truth for Donald Trump. He lost Wisconsin in 2020. In comparison, I beat Joe Biden in Wisconsin by 15 points. That's a major crack in Democrats blue wall. That's a mandate for saving our country. And this is such an amazing poll for so many reasons. I mean, obviously we're gonna need to see more, see if there's a trend or whatever. But this is not a small difference between one Republican versus another. This is a coin flip in a state that Trump might well need to win to win the election. And Haley needing to literally maybe not even campaign there. Like she could save millions of dollars by not even running ads in Wisconsin. Of course, who knows what will happen through the course of an election, but or with the campaigning. But if you're the Republicans and you're looking at this, you're looking at a person who seems to have such a higher chance of beating Joe Biden. And then you remember that yes, when standing next to Donald Trump, Nikki Haley seems a little bit more reasonable. 
but she's still crazy. She will deliver the exact same tax cuts and deregulation that Donald Trump will. She'll be awful on the border. She'll demonize the LGBTQ community. She will give them the red meat that they want. It just, I guess, won't be quite as raw as the way they prefer when Donald Trump delivers it. And they're not gonna go with her. They're gonna turn down as close to a guaranteed presidential win as you can imagine. And maybe someone who could beat Biden so much that her coattails could usher in Republican control of the Senate, a larger majority in the House, and deliver for them all of the policy that they say they want. And like everything else, they're gonna set fire to that for the gamble of Donald Trump potentially being their guy. They prefer Donald Trump over almost guaranteed success on all of their priorities. And look, I don't want them to win, so I get to look at this and chuckle at how boneheaded they are. But if you're a Republican, you should be so frustrated by this. And maybe just maybe ask yourself, why is it that Nikki Haley does so much better than Donald Trump? Why is it that Donald Trump is as weak of a candidate as he is? There's potentially a lesson there. Now, I will also point out that that's not the only update on the primary. Marianne Williamson has also announced that she is suspending her primary challenge to Joe Biden. She's been in the race about as early as I think any of the other challengers to Joe Biden. And she had she had a lot of success on social media, getting young people especially invested in her message. But the media black did like a complete blackout on the primary. Joe Biden didn't engage any debates with her. So it was always going to be an uphill battle. She's been able to secure like four to 10 percentage points in various polls and in the early primaries. But it's clear that she doesn't have a path. That's what she's saying. And so she is leaving the race at this point. That said, the other challengers remain. So stay tuned for that. And with that, we're done with our first hour. Lots more to come in the aftermath, including some fun, I promise. And I'll see you after this.